You know it's not made up, Acts part one. That's what we're going to talk about, the first part of Acts. Because Acts is long enough, and there's so much in it, that we do not want to rush this. And there's a good division that, there's a lot of ways you can divide it, but the way that we're going to divide it up is you have the up to Stephen Acts, and then you have the after Stephen Acts. And there's something really beautiful that happens in the way that their understanding of reality shifts right at that juncture. But you already know what's going to happen before we jump in there. It's a new session, which means we're going to welcome the Spirit into it. So I'm just going to pray. Ready to just take a moment. Not going to be as long as the other time. I'm just quiet. And again, if anything comes in your mind as you're praying and as you're sitting, just jot it down. It may turn out that it's just that weird snack you ate that came from the pantry and did something in your head, right? Could, or it could end up being Thursday comes around and something happens that you're like, wait a minute. And you look back and you look at that random word that seemed random then, but now it's like, oh my gosh, like that was a seed that the spirit planted. So we don't know. We're just, we're just stepping into this. We're just practicing seeking the spirit and welcoming the spirit in to do whatever the spirit wants to do. So let's do that. Father God, I just want to thank you that you are God and you are good. We thank you for the first session, um, <laughs> the way that you work out timing, um, the way that you guide us, even in those spaces, in our own thoughts. Um, so we want to give you all of that now. We know how our minds can follow trains, can wander. We know how our, we can feel tired. We know how we can feel fully engaged but may miss the subtleties. We know all the ways that our minds can misstep or be right on point. And so we want to give it all to you, that you would guide our minds and thoughts. But right now, we want to invite the Spirit. We want to invite the Spirit to guide us. We want to invite the Spirit to guide this time. And we want you to be honored and glorified. So we want to demonstrate this act of releasing, of saying, here we are, of receiving, by just giving you some silence as a way of honoring you. So, Father God, we thank you that you are real and present and active in speaking. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you that we have the invitation to welcome the spirit. And so we move forward in the confidence that you are here and that we are yours. I pray in his holy name. Amen. You know, I want to emphasize again um, that what we're doing here in those moments is, is a practicing. Well, we'll come back to this idea later in one of the epistles, and I don't remember which, but this idea of practicing, of, of just continuing to step in because we're growing and honing and maturing. But just like anything else in life, something can seem far out of our reach, but if you just practice it, that distance becomes shorter and shorter. No matter how distant the Holy Spirit seems and how strange engagement of the Holy Spirit seems, these little acts of practicing, of stopping, of pausing, of creating silence, of releasing, these little things can get us closer and closer. So, when we talk about Acts, sometimes you see it written as the Acts of the Apostles, right? But one thing that we're really going to focus on is that what we're really seeing is Acts of the Spirit. Now, the Apostles are an important part of this. Jesus chose a group, Jesus equipped a group, taught a group, and then gave a helper to a group to go into all the world. But the thread through all of this is the work of the Spirit. Their capacity to do what they're doing, to know what they know, is because of the Spirit. And so I want us to keep that in mind, that as we're reading Acts, it's not just the Acts of the Apostles, it's not just the things that the Apostles did, because then we can think, oh man, the, the Apostle Peter, who is so far above me, the, the Apostle Paul, man, I wish I could be like the Apostle Paul. Like if we read their stuff there, make it very clear that it's not about them, but we still kind of put people up on pedestals, spiritual leaders up on pedestals. But if we understand this as the Acts of the Spirit, then it's not about attaining to the level of Paul or Peter. It's about inviting the Spirit. Uh, Jesus talked about the least of these. You know, the Apostle Paul, you'll hear next week, most likely talked about moments where he was weak and God was strong. It's the Spirit that's doing it. And now Acts is not an entirely new story, right? An entirely new show. It's more like a new season of a show, right? Like sometimes you'll have a spinoff or something. And it's like kind of connected to the last show, but it's its own new thing. Sometimes we treat acts like that, 
like we disconnect it from the Gospels. We know it's connected, but it just feels like a different thing, a different story. And we don't connect the two. This is the beauty of what y'all are doing in DBS, is you are connecting these threads, recognizing that the redemptive plan goes all the way through Scripture. And so, you know, anybody here watch The Office? Yeah, see, some, some, some heads nodding. Yeah. So I'm glad you said that because here's, here's the thing is for a lot of people, they felt like that. They loved The Office and then Michael Scott left and uh, it's just not the same show. Now we could treat Acts like this too, that Jesus was this really important figure and then, ah, oh, dang it, he left. He left the show. And I, I mean, I sure, I like Peter and this is great and all, but oh, I really miss that Jesus guy. I really miss Michael Scott. Jesus hasn't left. He's still the lead and he's introduced the helper. And so it's really important for us to remember this, that this isn't an entirely different story and we haven't lost the main character. Jesus is still in. And the spirit is bringing this stuff together. And in fact, bringing all of scripture together. We see it. You've seen it already in what Jesus quoted. You're going to see it this coming week. The Old Testament is going to keep coming into this story because the Spirit is bringing it into the mouths of Peter and Paul and others. But Jesus is still the lead. And we're also getting this incredible character arc of the supporting cast. Right? So like in the office, you have these characters, but then as you go, there's more depth. You get more backstory. You see how their characters grow and change sometimes in ways you don't like, but sometimes it's like, oh man, that's awesome. I love what they did with that character. We're seeing this with the disciples, right? They go from being fishermen and tax collectors that really have a very limited view of life to now Peter is, is the rock. He is helping to lead this body of believers. He is saying and doing amazing things. There's been this incredible character arc that didn't come from them, but came from the Spirit working in them. So how do these elements impact where we left off? Well, we're trying to connect these threads in DBS. But Acts specifically is a two-parter, right? You, you already went through Luke last week. So these stories actually go together. This isn't just some intellectual thing. They actually are designed to go together. And so we have to remember that it's not that the, the story has ended and now it's a new story. It's not that uh, the main character, Jesus, has left and now there's new characters. It's not that these characters are stagnant, right? There's, there's something beautiful that we're being invited into in Acts to see where the story goes next. I don't know who's seen Lord of the Rings, but it's, <laughs> it's this epic, epic, epic movie. Fun story. When people ask me what my favorite movie is, I don't have normal favorites. And it's not that Lord of the Rings is my favorite, but if I stretch the question out to say my favorite movie experience. Back in the day, when I was working at Urban Promise, I had a winter break time, and everybody else was gone except for my friend James from England. And we were going to be in this house by ourselves with no transportation, no money, because I was not making money. <laughs> we're like, what are we going to do? And James is like, well, I know someone who has the extended versions of the Lord of the Rings. This is back before streaming, so they were on DVDs. And so it was like this big old box, this box set. And each movie was like two DVDs, and you had to swap them out midway through the movie. So we came up with this plan, right? We were going to watch them all in one day. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh. It was beautiful. So beautiful. We planned it all out. We had all the snacks, all the drinks. We had prepared some meals that just needed to be put in the oven. So the rule was you could not get up until it's time to change a disc. So we did everything we needed to do in the morning, got our morning breakfast and our snacks around us and our drinks, started it, no bathroom breaks until we had to switch the disc. Then we put the food into the oven, started the next disc. By the time we were done, the food's warmed up and ready to go. We eat our lunch while we knock the next, like 12 plus hours. Oh, it's beautiful. I could not do that now for many reasons, but I got young kids and a lot of responsibilities. <laughs> So I, I think back on that, and I'm, I love it, because it's a beautiful story, right? Like J.R.R. Tolkien, oh my gosh. Like he didn't just write something. He created a world, created languages, created histories. And you see it reflected in these movies that were, they, oh, they put a lot of work into trying to do them well. So when I look at them, I think of the breadth of the full story. 
Each of them is important. Well, I know somebody who didn't know that it was a collection of books that was going to be made into three movies. And they just heard that it was a good movie that was kind of like some other movies that they liked. And so they went to see in the theaters. And they get to the end of the movie. And they're like, that's an awful ending. Right? Because, okay, they're looking at a mountain. Uh, what happens? Because they didn't know that there was more to the story. They didn't know that the characters were going to continue to grow. They were really sad. I mean, spoiler alert. They were really sad. What happened to Gandalf? Oh, man. And Gandalf's gone. Really, they didn't know Gandalf was going to come back. If, you don't, if it's a spoiler, that's on you. Right? Like, so they thought, they, they were limited in their understanding of what that movie could be. Right? In the same way, if you just had the Gospels and you don't recognize that that's not the end of the story, that Jesus wasn't joking around when he said, I'm going to send a helper and you're going to do even greater gifts. Like we're missing how beautiful the story actually is. So we're going to spend some time in Acts. And each time we come into a book, I'll give you some of the informational things, right? A lot of it comes from here. A lot of it comes from other places. But these are the what should we knows. So the author. So based on early tradition, this was written by Luke, the physician, the only Gentile author the only Gentile author in the Bible, an occasional travel companion of the Apostle Paul. We see this in Colossians 4.14, where he says, our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas, send greetings. And then for the Gentile author in the Bible piece, we look at Colossians 4.14, uh, where this is what indicates that Luke was most likely a Gentile. It says, He's given this list of people, including Luke, and he says, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers. This list, the only men, didn't include Luke. So by association, he wasn't a man of the circumcision. The date. Scholars are unsure. You might have seen this a whole lot, and you'll see this a whole lot more. Sometimes it's hard to peg who wrote something and when they wrote it. Sometimes you'll have somebody say with confidence, it was this person in this time frame based on this. And someone else will say, yeah, but did you consider this? And then someone will say, well, I'm just going to throw that all out. And I think it's this. So we got to take all these things with a grain of salt. Um, but what we can do is try to discern based on what we know, how can this influence our understanding and engagement? So we're unsure of when Acts was written. But the fact that Paul's death isn't mentioned makes some say that it was before that, so maybe around 64. So while others believe that it was written after the fall of Jerusalem, so sometime between 80, 70, and 90. It's a pretty big span of time, right? But there's still value. It's still, most still say it's within that first century block. Who's the audience? Well, Theophilus is one of them. Uh, one theory is that he underwrote the publication of Luke X as a patron, basically. Hey, Here's the funding. Go write the thing. Uh, but we see that at the start where he says, oh, Theophilus. And, right. So that is one specific audience member that we know. But many also say that there is a focus on, focus on Gentile Christians in particular. If Luke himself was a Gentile Christian, that would, include, that would influence his bend towards writing something for the Gentile believers. Now, what is the content that we're looking into. So as I mentioned, Acts is a part two of the Luke-Acts story. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So as I mentioned, there's incredible value to it being a connected story, right? You hear this amazing stuff in Luke and, oh, whoa, there's a sequel. <laughs> Man, what happens next? I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, right? So there's something beautiful about that wording. It's not, so the first book I talked about Jesus, now I'm talking about these. Began emphasizes that there was a start, but Jesus isn't done yet. Acts shares what Jesus continues to do, both in person, as we see in chapter 1, and through the Holy Spirit as a helper. And it details how the Spirit equipped and guided the disciples to become apostles over a unified body of believers, sending them beyond the Jewish people and into the ends of the earth. So, we see this broken down in a lot of stuff throughout Acts. So in this first section, we got Jesus and the Spirit equipping the church. Then we see ministry in Jerusalem. We see the ministry spreading beyond Jerusalem. 
The focus shifts at one point from Peter over to Paul. Then you get a whole lot of Paul. By the way, I'll mention this later. We are going to talk about Paul, but I'm going to tread that balance of not talking about Paul too much because then you're going to get Paul overload. You're already getting a lot of Paul here, but then if I'm talking about Paul and then you get Paul next week, that's a whole lot of Paul. So we're just going to, we're going to control that. But Acts does spend time there, so we're going to as well. The good news reaches Cyprus and southern Galatia. Then the council in Jerusalem. It's a big moment. We're going to spend some time with that. The good news reaches Greece. The good news reaches Ephesus. Paul's arrest in Jerusalem. The good news reaches Caesarea. The good news reaches Rome. A lot is covered in Acts, and we talked about that into all the world. Even just in this breakdown, you see that happening. It's getting into all the world, but a lot of stuff is going to happen in these, what is it, 28 chapters? So much. And we got to remember these themes. I told you this is going to come up often. The Spirit is real and at work. We're going to see this throughout Acts. The good news is for all and to all the world. And the invitation is to be a unified church. These themes will keep coming back in my slides, but also throughout Acts and the letters that we're going to read. So we were talking about shows earlier. So the last season of the disciples. Could have said the last season of the chosen, but that's an actual real show. So Jesus spent three years investing deeply in a group of Jewish God followers, challenging their perception in several core areas. So they were God followers. They met this Jesus guy. And then Jesus started to confront their perceptions, confront their understanding of reality. So he confronted their understanding of the accessibility of God. For example, if you really knew me, you would know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. That's a big claim, right? From now on, you do know him and you've seen him because you've seen me. He confronts their understanding of the power of the Spirit. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. He confronts their understanding of the role of the law. This was a big one. This was a hard one because the law was pretty important to the Jews. But he says, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but... To fulfill. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. So he also confronts their understanding of his role. They had a lot of ideas of what his role should be. Here's what he said. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This was a hard one. I mentioned Peter. We'll come back to that again. This idea that when Jesus talked about dying, Peter's like, no, 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 no. Your role is to reclaim Israel. (laughs) You got to be alive to be able to do that. So Jesus is like, no, 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 no. You don't understand my role. He also confronted their role. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. This passage is specifically coming from the washing of their feet, where their teacher, their rabbi, the son of God, is humbling, is humiliating himself and touching their nasty, nasty feet, doing something that he should never do, that maybe a servant could do, but really they should just do themselves because their feet were nasty, right? And he's telling them to do the same. I want you to serve and love in the same way that I'm doing. That is your role. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So when Jesus died, a lot of them were like, ah, I don't know what to do now. Then he came back and they're still like, ah, (laughs) Still don't know what to do now. And Jesus was inviting them to go, to go into all the world. That was their role, not to kind of bottle up, be their own little small entity in a safe space in Jerusalem. No, he was giving them a different role. 
And he confronted their understanding of what the reception would be because our understanding is if we're saying something that's true and good, that it will be received, right? True and good stuff is generally received by people. Now, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. He's making it clear to them that by accepting this role he's given them, they're going to have trouble. It's not going to be received by everyone. What we're going to come to find out in Acts is it's pretty extreme how much some people don't want to receive it. The reception's not always going to be great. But that's not the determining factor of whether they should continue to walk or not, whether they should continue to go. So we get to chapter one. Jesus equips them once more. Now I want you to imagine. Think of someone that you really respect as a teacher or as a mentor, someone that's poured a lot into your life, taught you a lot. I want you to imagine that you spent a lot of time with them and then suddenly that time ends. Maybe it's a college professor and you graduated, right? Or maybe it's somebody that was close to you and then they moved or you moved. And that separation was hard. And in your mind, you're thinking, that's it. I'm never going to learn from them again. I'm so sad that time's gone. And imagine that out of nowhere, they come back. They're suddenly back in your life. And you get to learn from them once more. Like this is what the disciples were experiencing. They love Jesus. They love learning from like under him, learning from him. And then he was gone. And they were brokenhearted. And then he came back. And he spends 40 days pouring into them sharing about the kingdom of God and their purpose. But they're poised differently this time. Now, they had spent three years learning from him, but there's something different about these 40 days. So first, they've seen him die and rise. So they know now that he's the son of God. Like they kind of knew it. The spirit told Peter this. But then they see him living when he, they watched him die. Imagine how different your listening is to someone like that. This is no longer just a good teacher. This guy is the son of God who was raised from the dead. So I'm listening to whatever he says, right? They've also contended with their initial perceptions of his teaching before they really understood. A number of the disciples had moments where they thought they got it. And Jesus is like, no, no. No, no, right? They thought they understood, and Jesus is like, ah, where is your faith? Right? There is a lot of times in their pride, they thought they got what he was saying, and he had to continue to explain and reiterate and have a lot of patience with them, a lot of patience with them. So now Peter, right, is contending with the, his understanding that led him to deny Jesus. Then Jesus receives him back. And imagine how he listens differently now. I used to think that this was what Jesus was saying. I know that I was wrong now. So I'm going to listen differently. We listen differently when we're humble enough to realize that we misunderstood before. I love this passage. This is a good passage just to write down and hold on to for the inevitable moments in life where you do not understand. Jesus is washing their feet. Jesus knows what he's doing. Peter says, no, mm-mm, you're not touching my feet. You will never wash my feet. What Jesus says to Peter is, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. You ever had a moment in your life like that where you did not understand what God was doing? This is the verse that he's saying to us in those moments. I know. I know you don't realize right now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. Are we willing to have the patience to wait for the later? (laughs) Sometimes we don't. Just tell me now, God. Just fix it now, God. Well, now they've got an opportunity to see the wisdom in Jesus's timing. And now they're recognizing stuff they didn't understand then, they're beginning to understand now. They thought all was lost. But now they know something big is in store. Remember the road to Emmaus, they're so downtrodden, they can't even recognize Jesus walking beside them. That's how brokenhearted they are. And then once they realize, oh my gosh, That was Jesus. Didn't you feel your heart warmed as he talked to us? If this guy could be raised from the dead and he's now equipping us to do more, oh man, this is going to be big. I mean, it's got to be bigger than him raising from the dead, 
right? So this is going to be big. So ultimately what we're talking about is they're giving this invitation to awareness, humility, and expectancy, right? Awareness of who Jesus is, humility of what they didn't understand, and expectancy of what is to come that is abundantly more than they could ask for or imagine. But, and I hinted at this earlier, they are still holding to old mindsets and responses. They're still human. So it's not like in that moment, they got it and they are perfect. They arrived and now they did everything right. As Jesus is talking, they're still kind of expecting him to reclaim and restore Israel. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And maybe they're thinking, aha, I see what you did there, Jesus. Because if you would try to do it when you were alive before, they would have just seen you as just some man and really fought back. But now, now when you reveal yourself to the teachers of the law and to Pontius Pilate, they're going to see you and say, he is alive. We must obey him. And that's how you're going to restore Israel. I get it now. You genius you, right? They're still thinking in a very human mindset. Lord, are you at this time going to restore kingdom of Israel? And Jesus is like, "Ah, you're not going to know the time or the place. (laughs) Ease up, Skippy. It's going to look different than you think. Jesus didn't say ease up, Skippy. That's not in the Bible. Then Jesus is taken up. And what do they do? They just stand there staring. Staring long enough that angels had to confront them on it. (laughs) Why are you you standing there looking at the sky? Come on, let's go. Jesus invited you to go. Come on, stop staring. There's a lot of reasons they could be standing, right? They're staring because they can't believe what they just saw. Did we just dream this? Surely we dreamed this. This can't be real. Maybe they're staring because they're scared. Once I stop staring, I actually have to do something with this. And I have no idea what's ahead. Maybe they're staring because they're like, maybe he'll come back because we cannot do this without him. We can't. Like, we, we need Jesus. There's no way we can do this without Jesus. And there's all kinds of reasons they could be staring. And the angel's like, nope. Stop that. Let's go. Let's roll. And then later we see it in their gut response to the Hellenistic Jews and the Gentiles and others. But there's some old mindsets that impacted how they engaged with the Hellenistic widows that impacted how they wanted to engage with the Gentiles. Some old mindsets. But you know what? The good news is there was also a helper spirit that was aware of their old mindsets and responses and was about to put some things in place to patiently and graciously walk them from themselves into the abundantly more. So what is to come? This is what Jesus tells them. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus is pretty explicit here. One, I'm sending the Holy Spirit. You're going to receive power. So any fear you have that you're not going to be able to do it, you're actually going to do more than I did. So relax. I'm sending the helper. But he's also explicit about where they're going to go. Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And who knows what they were thinking when he was saying that. Did they hear Samaria and say, oh, maybe he's just joking. Maybe it's a couple people like the woman at the well. So we'll have a couple more women at the well. (laughs) And then that's good. And all the earth. There are a couple places where there's some like Jewishes in the Jewish diaspora that we could go and talk to them that are still spread out and Maybe that's what they're thinking. Maybe they just tuned it out because they didn't want to think about going to Samaria because they had been trained all their lives to not go to Samaria, to avoid it, to not talk to Samaritans, to not trust Samaritans. So who knows what they were thinking, but this was his invitation. But he tells them specifically to wait. Don't jump and start doing stuff to wait. And I don't know if you've ever had this moment before, but that's a hard call from God. When I mentioned that I was in that hard work situation, There's one point that it got so hard. I was like, God, I can't stay here anymore. I can't. Tell me what to do. Should I stay or should I go? The only answer that he gave me was just to wait. Just to wait. I'm like, how long? (laughs) How long do I have to wait, God? And why am I waiting? Can Can you tell me that much? He didn't. He didn't tell me any of that in his wisdom. And I can look back now and see the beauty of that. Because if he had told me, I would have responded in certain ways. If If I hadn't waited and had taken things in my own hands, I would have probably fought for myself or for my job. Like All these things that could have gone in a direction, but the weight actually aligned uh, certain things in certain places that accomplished something that I couldn't have imagined. 
He's telling them to wait. He knows the timing that he has. Part of that, by the way, is that he's thinking of the timing of what we celebrated yesterday, Pentecost, right? By the way, kind of convenient that we're doing church week the day after Pentecost. Mm-hmm. Kind of convenient, right? There's actually been a lot of weeks that have lined up strangely weird, like, like precisely yeah. Yeah. And that's the beautiful thing about God is timing is nothing to him. Like for us, timing can be really tricky, really tricky because there's so many factors and a lot of factors that are outside of our control. But God's like, oh, it's all in my control. So I'm going to orchestrate this so so many of these weeks in DBS align. And yeah, you know what? Let's go ahead and have church week after Pentecost. Right? Bamboo didn't design that, right? But here we are. Now, why? I don't know. I can infer some meaning. But I think it's powerful to see even in this is Jesus says to wait because he wanted this perfect timing of there being loads of people around where the disciples would be waiting. Loads of people, more than there would normally be. And this time, the disciples listen and respond. They didn't always do this. Prior to the crucifixion, they often failed to listen and respond. And why is that? Well, a lot of reasons. They're human. <laughs> they think they know what's best. They think they know what Jesus is trying to accomplish. They know what they're scared of. They know what they're capable of and what they're not capable of. So one example is, they're like, hey, Jesus, we got thousands of people here. That's great that you wanted to talk for hours and hours and hours. We got to wrap this up because people are getting hungry and they're starting to ask us for food and we do not have the food or the money. So the only option is to send them away. I mean, we can't just materialize food, Jesus. So, and Jesus is like, you feed them. And their response is, uh, no, like we can't do that. We don't know how, right? He gave them an invitation and they didn't listen and respond. Jesus demonstrated it to him. Well, now they're beginning to listen and respond. Waiting is not necessarily an easy thing, right? Because there are unknowns and risks. What in the world are they waiting for? What is this helper going to, is it going to be another physical person? And if it's not, what does that even mean? <laughs> like, how are we going to, what is that going to feel like? How are we going to know? And what if the people that were mad at Jesus are still trying to find us? Remember, Peter kept a distance from Jesus because every time somebody confronted him and said, hey, aren't you one of his followers? He was scared of being pinpointed because then he could get persecuted. Persecution could still be waiting for him. So by waiting instead of hiding, like they're facing risks and unknowns, but they're willing to do it this time because they have seen the risen Jesus. They have seen the power of God in a way they never thought would be possible. And so they all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And we're going to hear from a couple of those brothers, James and Jude, this week. And the disciples are being transformed pre-spirit. Now, this is a really cool thing, right? We often think of the spirit coming and that's when the transformation happens, but we're actually seeing some transformation now. It says here, in those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering around 120, and said, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. And he was one of our number sharing and shared in our ministry. For, for, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of us men, uh, one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord was living among us. So, this is a very different Peter and a very different group of disciples than what we often saw in the Gospels. Because often in the Gospels, disciples were arguing a lot with each other, right? There are a lot of times they were mad with each other. Uh, you got the sons of thunder trying to get the seats next to Jesus, and they're like, what are y'all doing? And you know, they're... Now you're getting Peter. Same guy, however, who rebuked Jesus, often told Jesus no. Peter, speaking with maturity. The same guy who not long before had, betray- had denied Jesus. Talking about the guy who had betrayed Jesus, 
And he's doing all this in the same way that you might expect a teacher of the law doing it, right? Putting in this biblical application, as David spoke long ago, right? This unschooled, possibly illiterate guy. Look at this presentation of him, this transformation that has already happened. Now, we often stop here. We can say, wow, Peter's a pretty cool guy now. He's, he's pretty spiritually mature. We stop here in our lives sometimes. I've learned some things and I've done some things. This is only a glimpse of what the Spirit's about to do for Peter, right? Instead of having this sense of accomplishment, there's this sense that there is more to come. Now let's talk about the apostles for a second. So we got the Greek word apostolos, apo, from, and stello, I send and I depart. You know, side note, I learned Greek in college. I took a couple years of it. I did really well. I learned Spanish in high school, and by learned, I mean I got by, got good grades, and didn't retain any of it. And I was like, not with Greek. I'm going to retain Greek. But junior year of high school and college are, seem to be ones where you get super busy and you can't do anything outside of that. And so junior year is after I'd finished Greek, and I was like, I'm going to keep on retaining it. Didn't do it. Didn't retain it. So I can read these words, <laughs> sometimes know them, but I wish, I wish I knew them deeper. But there's power in knowing these words, right? So the idea with this word is that it's a messenger, an envoy, a delegate. We can see apostles and disciples. We see those used interchangeably sometimes. You see it in the gospel, mostly disciples, but sometimes you see apostles. And the way we can think about it is it's not like they stopped being disciples. Disciples, students under Jesus, like Jesus was still alive. They were still learning from Jesus, learning from the Spirit. They were still disciples, but they were also sent. They were also sent to be delegates. So they were also apostles. And specifically in Acts, we see that designation used to designate the specific 12, right? We also hear a phrase later from Paul, ambassadors of Christ. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is the invitation we're given, right? To be ambassadors of Christ, to be representatives, to be delegates of Christ as we go out into these spaces. And then when Paul was talking about we need to get another guy to replace Judas, this idea of 12 being representative of the 12 tribes is very important. There was still an invitation to engage with the Jewish people, but there is a bit of a stumbling block here for the apostles that still weren't ready to engage with the Gentiles because they could take this and misapply it to think that this was just for the Jewish people. But Jesus made it explicitly clear. They're going to Samaria and all over the world. Jesus is already engaged with Gentiles on multiple occasions. So the Gentiles are a part of this story, this redemptive story of humanity. The 12 tribes were important and representative, but were not meant to be a blockade. And let's talk about crazy steps of faith, because this is what they're doing. What they're doing is crazy. What they had been doing was already crazy. I'm a fisherman. I'm doing my fisher thing. This guy says to follow me, and I leave my boat and become a fisher of men. <laughs> That's crazy. That's absolutely crazy. What happens to your family? What happens to your well-being? How do y'all get money? How do you? It's the same questions we get asked in life. You might have had some people think you were a little crazy for coming here. That's 12 weeks of your life. You quit your job to do this? What? You didn't get a job that you could be getting that in? You need income. You need income to live. You, you need income. That's how the world works, right? Crazy, crazy steps of faith. And what we're being invited into is not to secure our financial stability or to secure our reputation or to secure this, that, or the other. We're being invited to seek God first to love God and love others. And because the wisdom of God is foolishness to man, the invitations are often, often, often crazy. So over the last few years, as I've held things loosely, there's so many moments that they were crazy steps of faith. I didn't have a guarantee in writing. God didn't put down a physical contract that he had signed saying, here's what I'm inviting you to. Here's the stipulations of what I'm going to do, how it's going to work out, how I'm going to provide. No, what he said is, I am provider. Trust me for your provision. But how, God, if I don't have a paycheck, trust me for your provision. Yeah, but this person, nope, trust me for your provision. They were being asked to trust in a very volatile time with limited resources. I mean, it's just a group of them. You know, there's the 12 of them, and then there's 120 total. That's still a small group. And they're still like going into the unknown. (laughs) 
What does life after Jesus look like? Who's this helper? This is something that we're going to see this throughout the week in some very big ways. Peter, Paul, others take crazy steps of faith that they sometimes become aware could mean their very lives. So why do they take them? Because they've come to realize that life is actually bigger than they understand. Life is about more than them. God is actually after abundantly more than they could ask or imagine. Jesus actually promised life to the fullest. So whatever they think they understood and knew, no, no, knew, no, they knew, they don't know it anymore. There's something bigger, right? There's something that God is inviting them into. We're going to have that invitation this week. We're going to have that invitation throughout our lives. And Acts and the epistles give us the opportunity to see what that looks like and to start practicing it. Anybody ever seen The Wizard of Oz? Yes. Yeah, that was a classic, classic. Not in Kansas anymore. That's, if they had seen that movie, the disciples would be like, yep, we're not in Kansas anymore. Their ways of lives were different. The Spirit introduced them to a new reality amidst the old, right? The old was still there. The old ways, the old people, the old things, that was still there. But now they have come to see and understand something that other people didn't. We saw Jesus alive after he had died. All those people didn't see it. So we can't even explain it to them. But we know what we've seen. So it's like in the movie, Dorothy goes from a black and white world to a world of color. Now, we were talking about colorblindness earlier, right? So there are colors that I've seen that you have not seen, right? And if I've heard that there are these glasses that you can get that you can put on if you're colorblind and suddenly see colors that you hadn't before. I don't know if that's real or not, but there are videos on the internet that exist of people putting them on and their reactions are like, <gasps> because they had heard that this thing might be real, but now they're seeing it. This color is actually real, right? The disciples had heard about a Messiah. They had heard about the ways that God could work, but now they had actually seen it. They've gone from black and white to color. When Dorothy saw color for the first time, her mind had to be blown. What are all, like, what is this bright red on these roses? Roses are gray. What is this? Right? You can't explain these things if you haven't experienced them. But they are experiencing these things now that they can't explain. But it's real. They know it's real. In that movie, too, you have characters in both worlds. At the end of the movie, she's like, and you were there, and you were there, and you were there, and you were there, too. Right? It's this, you, we're watching it and we're recognizing, oh, it's the same actor. That's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's these same, Peter is still the Peter that was born and became a fisherman. But like we just read, he's someone very different now. Right? There's something different about him. People that they assumed were enemies, right? In the black and white. Now, suddenly, there, there's something different. These, the Samaritans, there's something different. And now they have a different purpose. My life isn't just about doing this. Dorothy suddenly realized a different purpose. Like she started the movie saying, I have to run away because it's all about me and my dog. And, right? But then she gets to the end of the story and she realizes the value of family and the reality. You know what I mean? It's like the disciples suddenly realize there is a deeper purpose to life that they couldn't have seen before. Not until this new reality was thrust upon them. So in the moment, the Spirit changed their understanding of reality their understanding of their capacity. Like, I know what I, Peter, I'm an unschooled guy. To suddenly his capacity is to speak in front of thousands, to speak in front of teachers of the law. We know what our capacity is. We often limit ourselves by it. But the Spirit's trying to say, no, I get what your capacity is. I am not limited in my capacity. Their purpose, we just talked about that. Change their understanding of their impact. What can the 12 of us do? Like they, they could not have anticipated what was going to happen in chapter two. Like their impact, they probably saw a little bit, a little bit over time, but they're coming from seeing crowds come to Jesus and that diminish almost overnight. They come into Jerusalem, thousands, thousands of people saying, Hosanna in the highest. And then they're yelling crucify. So if they're going from thousands to like next to nothing, what could our impact be? Well, the spirit's changing all of that. Remember the spirit is real and at work. It was the spirit, not the efforts, knowledge, skills of the apostle that started the first church. Right? Because what did they do? They waited. They prayed. 
They were unified. That's what they brought to the table. Not, not any kind of big groundbreaking thing. They didn't say, all right, let's have a meeting. Let's plan out the structure of the first church. We're going to make some committees. We're going to do this, that, and the other. We're going to fundraise. We're going to, right? They didn't do any of that. In obedience, they waited and they prayed. Waited for the helper. So what did the helper of the spirit do? <laughs> Tongues of fire. <laughs> like, what in the world? Right? <laughs> the apostles knew it's released. Tongues of fire, right? Like, but that's it. What in the world do you do with that? If tongues of fire appeared above our heads, how would we react? But this is what's beautiful about that is it was a visual, supernatural event. Like, it's not just some intellectual thing. Like, they were seeing fire floating, whatever that actually meant. They were seeing something that they're like, I have never seen anything like this before. Right? It's like how somebody might respond if they think they saw a ghost or an alien or Bigfoot. It's like, what? Oh, I didn't know that existed. Right? It's like they're seeing something that seemed imaginary, unreal, but they're actually seeing it. And it became a demonstration of the supernatural that they could not deny. They were speaking in multiple languages, right? Suddenly they had the capacity to speak outside of their capacity. And this not only was supernaturally within them, but went beyond them because other people were able to hear this. Talked about that perfect timing earlier, right? All these people were in Jerusalem that weren't normally in Jerusalem. All these people from different places that spoke different languages. And they're all happening to be in this same hearing distance from the disciples. And that's not an accident. We were talking about perfect timing earlier. This is perfect timing that they could not have orchestrated. It's a display of the Spirit. Also important timing <laughs> is that when it happened, like nine in the morning, because what they were doing was so wild. What did some of the people end up saying? Oh, I think they're drunk. <laughs> I think they're drunk. Well, if it had been at like, Six in the evening or nine in the evening. Well, maybe they were drunk, right? Well, maybe, who knows? It's that time of the day. And no, it was nine in the morning. They weren't, it was too early to be morning drinking. And so there were people there, even though there were people saying it, most people watching it were like, no, they can't be drunk. Like this isn't drunkenness. This has to be something different. That's the Spirit's perfect timing. And then the Spirit's speaking through Peter. Again, Peter didn't plan to have a speech before thousands of people. Old Peter wouldn't have wanted necessarily to do that. Peter could barely grasp what was going on. Again, tongues of fire. <laughs> like suddenly he's got to get, if it was just in and of himself, he would have to get his mind together and figure out what am I supposed to do here? You know, I talked about there being crowds of people. And I'm not going to read all this. You'll get the slides later. But this is a visual example of how far people were coming from. Here's who was within hearing distance. As far as Rome, right? Cyrene, Egypt, Arabia. People that they would not have access to otherwise are suddenly hearing all this and seeds are being planted. Some of them ended up staying in Jerusalem. Some of them were bound to have gone back and taking those seeds with them. So God had gone out before. Before we even get to Peter and Paul and them actually going out and doing their missionary journeys, the Holy Spirit was already doing a missionary journey into all the world. So what was the result? They were filled, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. The disciples who had been waiting were filled with the Holy Spirit, the helper, the one that Jesus had promised. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So Peter, with a speech that he didn't plan, said what he said, and the people who received the word were baptized and thousands were added to this body of just like 120 people. Thousands in a moment. And they could not have grasped this happening to this many people, particularly because of the language barrier. If they had planned it out, well, we've got to, we're going to have to only be able to work with the people that speak our language, right? Like, they could not have expected or anticipated this big of a thing. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And all came upon 
every soul, all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. All right, so we've already talked about thousands were beginning to see and live this new reality. And it's continuing to spread, and we're seeing it fleshed out in how they're learning, how they're fellowshipping, what their worship looks like, what their prayer looks like, what community looks like, what provision looks like. I want to pause for a second, because we're prone sometimes to get caught up on the numbers. This is not about the thousands. This is not to say that that's where the value is. A beautiful thing happened here, a powerful thing happened here, but we can take this and make it about numbers. Therefore, my value in the kingdom is to get as, the, as many people as possible saved, to serve as many people as possible. That's not necessarily a bad goal, but sometimes that can become the goal. And then sometimes we can undervalue what God's doing because it's not enough. We didn't mention this earlier, but when I did my outreach, it was a stateside outreach, which was not, they had not done, I think, a stateside family DTS. And part of our outreach was here, where I live. There's a much longer story, but normally you don't do an outreach where you live. It is not conventional. That's not normal. And for the Norwegians, it was a, a different outreach forum because it was in the States. But culturally, many things were the same. And we would hear all these stories of the hundreds of people that were coming to our groups that were in Uganda or the Philippines and running up to their vans. And meanwhile, are in the States and nobody's running up to our vans. <laughs> Nobody wants to come up to us because there's a different spiritual culture in the States, right? It would have been very easy for us to get downtrodden about our low numbers. And God had to keep reminding us, I'm not doing something with numbers here. I'm doing abundantly more. Don't get caught up in the numbers. So don't get caught up in the numbers, both as we're reading this, but also in your life, because the Spirit's doing something bigger than just getting lots of people. Peter's speech. So Jesus predicted this moment, right? And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. So we see this story where Jesus and where Peter, in and of his own efforts, had often caught fish before. But because of Jesus, he caught more fish than he had ever caught in his entire life. Like so much fish that they needed two boats and the boats were sinking. Right? And Jesus says, you're going to be catching men. And now we see it. This moment where Jesus has given him the helper, the helper gives him the words and he speaks. And thousands of people, more people than Peter could have ever imagined he could inspire with words. Like he was a fisher of men in this moment. And this is paired with another time that Jesus spoke, where he said, Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjonas. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, Cephas, Petra, the rock. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. First, remember that it wasn't Peter who knew Jesus, who Jesus was. Like it was not flesh and blood. God had given him this supernatural wisdom to recognize something he couldn't know of himself. God revealed it to him. In the same way, it wasn't Peter who built the church, but God built it upon him in this moment. Jesus saw this coming. Peter couldn't have comprehended it. He wouldn't have believed it if Jesus said, by the way, 
one day I'm going to send the helper and you're going to speak and you're going to say things you never said before and thousands of people like Peter wouldn't have believed him. He wouldn't have believed him, but Jesus knew. Right now you don't understand, but one day you will. So here's Peter, this untrained, uneducated fisherman, speaking like an educated teacher, saying this long speech that includes passages. I'm awful at memorizing, right? And here's Peter spouting off all this stuff. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's quoting from Joel. This fisherman quoting a passage from Joel. Then he doesn't stop there. He jumps over to Psalms. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices for my blood, my flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol nor, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are the pleasures forevermore. And then he keeps on going. Another one from Psalm. Brothers, I may say to you, with confidence, wait, yeah. Oh yeah, this is where he's actually saying, okay. <laughs> I was like, that doesn't sound like Psalm. <laughs> Brothers, this is what he's actually saying. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. This is a fisherman talking. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So he's bringing verses. He's bringing some deep theology. I mean, he is going in hard for someone whose main qualifications are catching fish. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. We talked about this verse earlier. Because Peter then goes and does the same thing before the teachers of law. And even the teachers of law, it's one thing for the common people to, oh man, he, he sounds smart. It's another thing for the teachers of the law to be astonished. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, this is why. This is why he was able to speak like that. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the Holy Spirit and thus able to speak in the way that he spoke. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? We're going to come to a passage later about the word of God being living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. These people came to Jerusalem to honor God. They journeyed miles and miles, sometimes maybe through treacherous seas, treacherous paths, going the long way around Samaria so they weren't uh, robbed on the road. At great risk, they came because it was a way to honor God. And what the Spirit has given Peter to say cuts them to the heart. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So we talked about the good news being for all. So the Spirit begins to bring in those who are neglected. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. This guy was neglected. I mean, what we know about him is he's coming to the temple day after day after day just to get enough to survive. How many people walked by him and didn't make eye contact? How many people walked by and refused to help him? And the Spirit saw him. And the Spirit equipped Peter and John. Then they came, nope, that's a different one. Equipped Peter and John to see him and uh, respond 
in a way that exhibited the same kind of love that Jesus often exhibited to those that he met that were often neglected. The uh, tax collectors, people that people identified as sinners, those that had some kind of a handicap, those who had leprosy. Like Jesus was exhibiting love, and now they're doing the same way. Whereas before, it was common for them to say, hey, blind Barabbas, stop yelling at Jesus. Ease up. He's trying to go somewhere. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving a city. Oh, man. I keep on sharing these verses and forget that I have the next one there. <laughs> it's convenient. Uh, together with a large crowd, they were leaving a city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And so we see a different reaction, right? We see their resistance as well when it says, then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. So the deal is they were struggling. Jesus did not answer a word, so his disciples came to him and urged him, send the Canaanite woman away, so she, for she keeps crying out after us. She's annoying us. They had this habit of not wanting to engage with those who were neglected, not wanting to engage with those who felt like a nuisance. And Jesus was the one that demonstrated what it looked like to show love. So when he gets to this guy sitting at the gate, it says, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. I mean, the guy was so downtrodden, he wasn't even making eye contact anymore. Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Peter would not have felt like he would have the authority to say that back in the day. But the Spirit was doing something. So this guy's healed. Everyone is astonished and amazed. And Peter says, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this, we're all witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Look how powerful is this? Peter, who once was saying, Jesus, can you get the kids away? Jesus, can you tell this annoying Canaanite woman to go? Jesus, Bartimaeus is annoying right now. Peter is not only showing love to this guy, but is acknowledging, don't, don't look at us like we did this. This is the Jesus that you actually were in the presence of, that you actually missaw, and he has come back to life. He has brought power, and it's through his name that this man who you know shouldn't be able to walk is now in perfect health, right here, right now in front of you. This is good news for all because now not only were the Jewish people hearing this message like they did in chapter 2, but the people who are neglected like the man at the gate and the teachers of the law and people who might have doubted Jesus significantly, they're hearing this deep, powerful truth. And the Spirit continues to work. There's more miracles, more growth. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of these things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, not a single one. For as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multi uh, multitudes of both men and women, so that 
They even carried out the sick into streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits as they were all healed. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Did you catch that part? A great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. We're going to stop here. But as you can see, we're, I mean, we're just barely into Acts. We're just barely into Acts. But these themes are pressing in hard. That the, the power of the Spirit is very real. That we're being invited to go into all the world. And that we're being called to unity. Did you hear that beautiful picture of unity among the disciples? All things in common. No one had anything in need. They were eating together, worshiping together, fellowshipping together. This is something deeper than our two hours on a Sunday a week kind of approach to church that we too often have. This is doing life together. This is learning together. This is struggling together. This is meeting each other's needs. This is a deep understanding of unity, a beautiful understanding of unity that, again, came through the Spirit. Now, this all sounds good. But Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. (laughs) So tomorrow, we're going to pick back up. And we're going to talk about where the trouble starts to happen. 